This morning, go ahead and turn there. Genesis chapter 37. Sermon title this morning is Joseph, Sovereignty, and the Gospel. Two things this morning we're going to focus specifically on is God's sovereignty and the gospel of Jesus in the life of Joseph. Two primary things, God's sovereignty and the gospel of Jesus in the life of Joseph. We're going to start a several week journey walking through the life of Joseph. It's going to be a lot of fun uh, for many. Uh, in fact, it, not just for many, for anybody who is a serious thinker in this world currently or in the history of the world or in the future of the world. Uh, God's sovereignty is one of great contemplation. It's a powerful, it's a deep truth in this world, and yet it is immensely practical, and it is simple to understand. It is complex and it's simple. That's how the things of God are. You can teach the deep things of God to children at VBS, and also the greatest minds in the world continue to wrestle with these same truths. And so this morning, we have people of all ages in here, Okay, I just talked to Silas and Ella back there. Uh, we have Fisher in here. We have Finley in here. We have a bunch of different kids in here. And I hope that you kids will be able to understand some of the things that I'm talking about today. And yet, for the most intelligent in the room, whoever you may be, this should also just be mind-blowing to you. Simple and it's profound. All in the same, all in the same breath. But what I want to do quickly is cover the rest of chapter 35 and all of 36 to bring us up to speed to where we are in chapter 20, or 37. So I'm going to do the quick overview, and then we'll pray and get into Genesis chapter 37. We'll cover the whole, the whole chapter. In Genesis chapter 35, which is where we were last week, we covered quite a bit of ground, and we talked about the renaming. We talked about God giving two reminders to Jacob. Um, and then we talked about our great reminder, the gospel of Jesus uh, at Calvary. And we didn't get to get into chapter 35, verse 16, down through verse 20, 29. Uh, but in the, the rest of that chapter, I want to push you to that, to have you go read that at home. We hear about Jacob's final son, Benjamin, being born. And in this birth, Rachel, Benjamin's mother, Benjamin's mother, dies. Jacob's beloved Rachel dies. Jacob ends up having his twelfth son, the twelve tribes of Israel, with Benjamin being the youngest boy. And we find about Isaac's death, Jacob's father Isaac's death. We read about it's a short little telling of Isaac's death. And that's kind of how things are in most of the Bible and telling about great and men and women dying. It's just one or two sentences. Uh, the scriptures make a great deal about God and His glory. And we, in the way God honors us, is through giving us life and inheritance and the gospel of Jesus and all the goodness that comes from that. But quickly in the scriptures, we move from great men and women on to the next. They just die. And we move on. And so Isaac dies. And we move on to hear about his sons and grandsons. So read about that when you get, get, get home or you're doing your Bible study this week. And then in chapter 36, we get, about all, we get to know about all the descendants of Esau. So if you remember, Jacob has a brother named Esau, and Esau has descendants. And you can read about Esau's descendants in chapter 36. Now, I wanted to just tell you that quickly and have you go and study that yourself but I wanted to dive right into chapter 37 this week as we talk about, as we talk about, get into talking about Joseph. 
Joseph. And so there are 12 chapters in the book of Genesis about the life of Joseph. This is fascinating. Joseph is talked about uh, only uh, almost more than anybody else in the book of Genesis. It's Abraham and then Joseph. And it's fascinating, in the Bible we have two chapters about creation, and then, for instance, in this book we have 12 chapters about Joseph. It should tell us something about the importance of Joseph, I think. But we get 12 chapters, starting in chapter 37, and it brings us all the way to the end of the book of Genesis, all the way into chapter 50. And the two themes, as stated previously, that we're going to focus on specifically this morning, the two themes that are going to come up repeatedly, not just this morning, but all the way from chapter 37 till chapter 50, the two main themes are going to be God's sovereignty and the gospel of Jesus. We're going to see it over and over again. In fact, those themes are not just exclusive to chapter 37 to chapter 50 in the book of Genesis, because as we've been walking through this book, we have seen God's power on display over and over again. We've seen God's sovereignty on display over and over again. And we've seen Jesus in the text over and over again. Have we not? Over and over and over again, we have seen the goodness of God in the work of Jesus in Genesis, the book of beginnings. It's been a, bit, it's been a book of redemption and a book about Jesus. So these two themes, sovereignty and the gospel. Let's pray and we'll start in 37 verse 1. Father, I thank you for the privilege of opening your word. And as I prayed about Cale in the beginning, I pray about myself. I have no authority here. I only have authority in so much as I stay glued and faithful to your word. It is your word that we sit under this morning. And there are so many practical things. This is going to impact us personally as we think about our dealings in our life, as we think about seasons in our life that have been hard and confusing, and as we think about seasons that have been wonderful, beautiful, and fruitful. As we talk about what we will talk about over the next several weeks, we're going to get practical help for difficult seasons, for suffering and just help us on this journey. Thank you for the life of Joseph. Extraordinary life. Thank you for his humility. I thank you for you helping him even through his screw-ups and his sin, just like you do us. Open our eyes today to see what you would have us see in Genesis chapter 37. I trust that you're going to. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Look with me in verses 1 through 4. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing in the flock with his brothers. He was a boy, the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them, report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Joseph is 17 years old, and he apparently, in this narrative, has some concerns about his brothers. He's working with his brothers and sees something that he's concerned about and decides that he's going to go tattletale a little bit 
to his father about his brothers. And so he brings these concerns to Israel, and these brothers do not like that Jacob did this, or that Joseph did this. We see in this passage that Israel had been playing favorites. Jacob, whose name is now Israel, had been playing favorites, and he loves Joseph more than any other of his sons. And if you remember, this is how it was with his father Isaac. Isaac loved Esau, played favorites with his boys. Isaac loved Esau. Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, again, like father, like son, Jacob continues with that unholy tradition, and he loves Joseph more than the other brothers. And so that fact, and then on top of that, Joseph tattling on his brothers, the brothers hated Joseph all the more. They didn't like him. They didn't like the special gift that Joseph got, a coat of many colors. They didn't like it. They looked at it and they were envious. They wanted the love of their father in the way that Joseph had the love of his father. They were built inside with jealousy, not humility. They were frustrated, angry, and they could not think good thoughts about their brother. They couldn't even speak peacefully to him. So the scene is again, yet again in the book of Genesis, sibling rivalry. Okay, brothers who are having difficulty with their younger brother, Joseph. They do not like him. Well, things get worse. The relationship that's already strained because of the favoritism that's happening in the home and because of the coat of many colors that was given from Jacob to Joseph and because of the fact that Joseph went to his father about some concerns about the brothers, they're already frustrated. It begins to build because Joseph has some dreams, some peculiar dreams. Now, most dreams are peculiar, right? In your dream, you're an airplane plane pilot, and all of a sudden then you're mowing your yard with a bunch of Care Bears, and then you're playing basketball when you were in high school, and then it's just weird, right? Okay, I've never dreamed about Care Bears, but still, once a month at least, I'm dreaming, dreaming that I can dunk a basketball. And I'm dunking on people from high school, I mean, two-handed dunks, I mean, like back, backwards dunks, I mean, all sorts of dunks, at least once a month. Dunking on Ryan Strunk over there, I mean, all sorts of, I, that, dreams are just funny like that, they're weird. Jacob begins to have some dreams, and he starts talking about them. And the tension that's already existing between Joseph and his brothers begins to build, it begins to escalate. And unfortunately, it continues to degenerate until a pretty extreme point. Joseph has his first dream in verses 5 through 8. Now Joseph, starting in verse 5, had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we are binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Now his brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. You, Joseph, are going to rule over us, our little brother. And if you have been a big brother, the idea that your little brother would get an upper hand on you, probably when you were younger or even a young man, probably was not something that you would welcome. Joseph tells this dream, and his brothers hate him even more for it. Would you really reign over us, Joseph? Well, Joseph has another dream. You would think that he would learn his lesson 
and not tell of these dreams to his brothers who hated him and hated him even now more? Maybe he didn't know that this was causing more hatred. But the hatred is building. Joseph has a second dream, starting in verse 11. Look with me. And then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told to his father, told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. Not hatred anymore, jealous. But his father kept, kept the saying in mind. In mind. So the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down before him in his second dream. He tells it to his brothers and to his father. And Israel's first response was one of rebuke. So in front of his brothers... Jacob rebukes Joseph, and the brothers' anger we see is rooted in jealousy. That's how the brothers are responding. So Israel responds in, at first, rebuking, questioning the dream, and the brothers respond with jealousy. And we see that, that anger really is, more times than not, rooted in jealousy, not universally. Sometimes anger can happen for other reasons, like when you're cleaning the garage and the extension cord gets tangled. Anybody else but me? So angering, that extension cord. It's always tangled. It's unbelievable. So anger can happen, but jealousy was the root of the brother's anger. Envy and jealousy often hide behind the anger. There's always sin beneath the sin, if you didn't know. There are fruit sins. There are fruit sins, which in this case was hatred. But then we see that the root sin was jealousy. And so when we view our behaviors and we kind of assess why we do the things that we do, we have to ask, what's the sin beneath the sin? Because there's some reason for this external action. Is it jealousy? Is it a desire for reputation? And if you get in the way of my reputation, then I get angry about it? What is it? What's the sin beneath the sin? Well, we see in the brothers that it's jealousy. They were envious of their brother Joseph. So they respond, well, what will result from the jealousy of the brothers? What are the brothers going to do about this? Is it going to be feelings that go just kind of buried? Or are they going to take action? Are they going to do something about Joseph? Now, if you're familiar with your Bible at all, you know that they do, in fact, do something. This jealousy, this hatred, this anger begins to build up towards Joseph, and they take action. But first, we see that the father is going to send Joseph on a mission. So all the brothers who are angry with, with Joseph go off, and they are taking care of some sheep, doing some shepherding work, and they're in this city called Shechem, which is where Jacob used to live with his family. And so Jacob is going to send his son Joseph to check on the brothers. He's going to send the son on a mission. Joseph is going to go on a mission. He's going to go find out, hey, how, things, how are things going with the brothers? Are things going well? Has anybody gotten hurt? Are they well supplied? Is there anything that I need to report back to my father, Jacob? And then if there is anything that they need, I can go back again and I can, I can bring my brothers. So Jacob is going to send Joseph on a mission to find out how things are going with the brothers who hate him, who are jealous of him. This is what we see in verse 12 through 17. Read with me. 
Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me the word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And he found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They've gone away. For I heard him say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. So the mission is in play. Joseph is on track to find his brothers, finds out now they've left Shechem, and so he continues his journey and his travels down to Dothan to find the brothers. Now apparently, this land is somewhat flat because on the way to Dothan, as he finds his brothers, the the brothers are going to look ahead and they're going to see Joseph coming, and they're going to experience all those feelings raging back. Have you ever realized that, that sometimes jealousy or anger or rage, there's a season of life where that kind of disappears, and then all of a sudden, if the right scenario happens, all those feelings of anger, rage, frustration, begin come, they just come roaring back? Has that ever happened to you? And you start to wonder, like, oh my goodness, I thought I had dealt with that. Where's, where's that coming from? Well, when Joseph comes to his brothers, the brothers see Joseph coming, and it all comes back. And they start to get angry. They start to get frustrated. And they come up with plan A. And it is, believe it or not, the plan A from the brothers is a murder conspiracy plan. Now, it's going to get real quick. I mean, it's going to escalate quickly. But we see it happening and unfolding starting in verse 18. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to the them, to, to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him, and we'll throw him into one of the pits. Then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And what will become of those dreams then? I added the word then. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So Joseph came to his brothers. They stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So plan A, murder, conspiracy. The brothers see Joseph coming, can't stand the sight of him. All those feelings come roaring back. And they think, let's kill him. Okay, again, jealousy, undealt with, can get ugly quick. They don't think, hey, let's kind of give him a noogie, give him a swirly or a wedgie, which is typically what brothers do to other brothers. They say, let's kill Joseph. What will be of his dreams then? Let's get this dreamer and let's quiet him down. So they seek to murder. But in verse 21, Reuben, who was the son previously that we find out that defiled one of his fathers, so Jacob's wives, Reuben actually slept with him. Reuben, whose character is in question, in this instance steps up and he says, don't kill him, we'll just be really kind to him and just throw him into a pit. So, This revolutionary plan, plan B, happens, 
and they put him in a pit. There's no water in it, but at least Joseph's life is spared. Now, I want you to take a note here and remember this. Nowhere in this story do we hear about Joseph, how he's handling the situation. We don't know how he's handling it. We don't hear about his emotions. We don't hear about his thought life here. We don't hear uh, if he's even questioning his brothers and saying, hey, uh, what's going on here? We don't hear any of that. We will here in a little bit. But all we know is the actions and the thoughts and the intentions of the heart of the brothers. They put him in a, in a, in a pit, and apparently that's a good middle ground for them. It's a, it's a good, uh, what is it when you meet somebody in the middle? Compromise. It's a good compromise. Good idea, Reuben. We'll just throw him in a pit. We won't kill him. Plan B happens. They throw him in the pit after stripping him of his, of his robe. And the next verse, to me, is one of the saddest verses in the Scriptures. Because you think about, if you think about the heartlessness of this, it could, if we paused long enough, bring us to the point of tears. Look at verse 25. Then they sat down to eat. Really? Your conscience could allow you to sit down after that moment? And eat a meal? Have you ever had guilt so deep that you could do nothing but weep? Have you ever felt that gut feeling after doing something wrong? That the thought of eating food was just horrendous? They were so at peace with this decision that the very next thing they sat down to do was eat a meal. The heartlessness of the brothers towards the younger brother is on display. They care about their bellies, but they don't care apparently about their gut, that gut feeling. Their hunger they felt more than their conscience. They have this idea, there are some Ishmaelites that come along. We see in verse 26, let's just read it. After they sat down to eat, they looked up, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, he's our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him, they listened to him. The Midianite traders passed by. They drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. So plan, plan A, let's kill him. Plan B, the pit. And then another plan arises. Let's sell him away. At least we can profit a little bit on our brother. His blood, he is our flesh and blood after all. Let's not have his blood on our hands. Let's make a little side cash. The Ishmaelites are walking by. They pick him up out of the pit. And they sell him. Verse 27, Judah, from whom the lion of the tribe of Judah would come, Jesus. Judah stepped up and said, let's sell him. And they got him up, got him out. Like I said, and Joseph goes on his way, on his way to serve a sentence 
a sentence in which his brothers deserved. Who is in the wrong here, Joseph or his brothers? Clearly, his brothers. Who gets sold and goes off into who knows what? Joseph. What would you be feeling? We kind of think, well, it's a different day. Culturally, maybe it wasn't as impactful. Maybe Joseph really was okay in the matter. We know some things, if you're familiar with your scriptures, that he says later on about God doing some stuff here. Maybe he's calm, cool, and collected. I don't know. But this provided a problem for the brothers, and they were going to have to cover their tracks because Jacob was expecting Joseph to come back. So how were they going to cover their tracks? Well, in 29 to 36, we see how they do. They cover their tracks. The brothers kill an animal, and I'll summarize it quickly, put it on a coat, Joseph's coat, and they bring it back to their father, and Israel then grieves because his beloved son Joseph is gone as far as he is concerned. The brothers would, for, t- for the time being, the brothers would get away with it. There would be no consequences. For all they knew, they got away with their annoying little brother. Joseph, on the other hand, with the Ishmaelites, and he gets traded again. He gets traded into the captain of the guard in Pharaoh's court to a man named Potiphar. He was an officer for Pharaoh. So here is Joseph. Now, this is the story of Genesis chapter 37. What are the things that come to the surface, that rise to the surface? Well, I said it at the beginning, and I'll say it again. We're going to explore two topics in this passage. First, God's sovereignty. Second, the gospel of Jesus. In this chapter, as I stated before, we know nothing of Joseph's demeanor. We don't know how he handled himself or how he handled this mistreatment. Few people have experienced such psychological pain, such, emotional, such an emotionally painful event. Brothers throwing him into the pit and then being sold. Well, chapter 42, verse 21, tells us about Joseph's posture through all of this. And I want you to turn a few pages to the right, and I want you to read it with me. Chapter 42, verse 21, we get into the agony that Joseph was expressing, the pain of this event to Joseph. Chapter 42, verse 21, here's what it said. This is after Joseph's brother's return return and go to Egypt. So we'll be getting to this specifically here in a few weeks. Verse 21, it says this. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. This is the brother speaking to one another. We are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why the distress has come upon us. Apparently, The 17-year-old boy was in distress of the soul, and he was begging for his life from his brothers. You can imagine, if this was made to film, you can imagine this scene would include fear, 
fighting, anger, tears, confusion, a 17-year-old boy looking at his brothers, distress coming upon him, pleading, please don't do this. Reuben, speak up. Judah, how could you do this to me? Zebulon, please don't send me away. Please don't do this. I'm begging you, spare my life. I want to see my father again. I, don't, I want to see you guys again. I'm sorry. I won't tell you of any more dreams. I won't do it anymore. Please, whatever it takes, I'll, I'll get on your good side. I'll do your laundry for a year. I'll do whatever it takes. Please don't send me away. Distress of soul. Agony. 17 years old being sold into a life he knew nothing about. His brothers, instead of defending their little brother and fighting for him, sell him. Wash their hands with him and could care less if he lives or dies. All he knew in chapter 37, all Joseph knew was that his brothers and his brothers alone were doing this horrible act. He knew apparently in this situation not very much about what God was in fact doing or not doing. All he knew is that he was being sinned against. Horrible, a horrible thing was happening to him. But was that all that was going on? Was all that was going on in this chapter the sin of the brothers? Or is there another storyline? Could it be in the midst of all this sin and all this pain, could it be that God is not sitting on His hands? Could it be that God is actually active in this very painful event as well? Or was it only the actions of the brothers? There is a popular way of thinking about God that God only makes good things come from bad events. That God is actually kind of like Matt Chandler says, the ambulance driver. Something bad happens and then God sends you know, Jesus and the Holy Spirit to go and fix things and make something good happen out of this mess. Is all that was happening here God a innocent viewer of this story? Or was God in this horrific, sinful act actually doing something? And I do not want to appear empathy-less or unempathetic here. Because I'm going to say some things about God's activity in horrible events. And I don't want you to think that I am saying that God is evil. He is not. Or that God is doing something wrong. And there are some complexities to this that are difficult for us to understand. But I want you to see, God was at work in this story. It wasn't Joseph alone. God was at work. I want you to look at verse 45, chapter 45, verses 4 through 8. Years would go by, and it would allow time for Joseph to process this painful event. He looks back on this event, and now, years later, he's reevaluated. He's been able to understand what that all was about. Now, this is wonderful for the life of Joseph because God did reveal to him what he was doing. For some of you, your pain may never be interpreted until Christ returns. And you may never know all the answers to your questions of why. But you will have Jesus with you. Joseph, in this instance, did get some answers to his questions. Why? 
You may not. But hopefully the answers that Joseph gives will give us some handles, even when we don't get all the answers to our pain. Hopefully it will give us some answers, some real practical help for us to know, even if I go through the worst unimaginable pain season in my life where I am crying out in distress of soul like Joseph, hopefully we can get to the point where we can see, okay, if God is doing that for Joseph, he is doing that for his children. He is doing that for me as well. It's not just Joseph whose eye God was on, but it is mine as well. He's looking at my life. And he is with me. Joseph's going to give us some answers as to what was going on in chapter 37. He says some amazing things in chapter 45, starting in verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. They came near, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph. It's the big reveal. They don't know this is Joseph. Come back to Egypt. And now Joseph is here, and the brothers had been bowing down to him. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. In verse, okay, sorry, in verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near and said to him, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold to Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Really? I would be saying the opposite. Be now distressed because you sold me here. This is my opportunity that God gave me a vision about. You will keep bowing down to me and you will now serve me. But that's not what Joseph says. He actually brings comfort to his brothers. He said, don't be dismayed. Don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land two years. And there is yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth. And to keep you alive, you for many survivors. So it was not you who sent me, but God. Amazing. It was not you who sent me, but God? Are you kidding me? Now Joseph couldn't see it in the moment. 42 tells us he was distressed of the soul. But now, in chapter 45, reflecting back, he's able to say, hey, you meant something for evil here. You were doing something. You sold me. But here's the deal. God sent me here. So chill out. I'm not angry. In fact, I don't want you to be distressed here. God was actually working. He sent me here to do something for you, to preserve life. And then, amazingly, in chapter 50, verse 20, he says this. Chapter 50, verse 20, if you want to turn there. Speaking again to his brothers, he says something similar. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. It was really the brother's sin, and that was really their intent, evil. But God used it and turned it for good? No. Your pain isn't purposeless, only existing for God to somehow figure it out. And that could feel heartless. 
But I want you to hear from the words of Joseph, comforting words. God meant it for good. It was a bad event. It wasn't a good event. It really caused agony of soul, tears, begging of his brothers. But God's intention with it was for good. Joseph did not say, God used it for good, turned it for good, Although later in the Scriptures, certainly God does that, works all things together for good for those who love God or are called according to His purpose, certainly does that. But in this instance, God had a purpose even with this sin. Now, I want you to be comforted. Here's how it's comforting. You're in a painful season. It's not purposeless. It's not. Are you crying out in soul? You're going to have seasons in your life where you will. And if you can remember, God is not absent. In fact, this distress, this pain, is not a sign of God's absence. It's a sign of His presence. And God is doing something in you. As a loving Father, not as just a taskmaster sovereign God, as a loving Father, He is intentionally bringing you through pain for something. And it may be for the billions of years in the presence of God, in the worship of God, as we're experiencing the inheritance until we figure it out. But if you can just hold on to that, God's doing something here. This isn't pointless. It's not arbitrary. My pain here. This isn't Satan's victory. God's doing something. You may not get your answers, but you'll get His presence. Second piece, the gospel. So God's sovereignty and secondly, the gospel. This We'll need to move quickly through this. The father sent a son, his son, on a mission, his beloved son. The brothers seek to kill the son, but instead they send him away. The son has to go, the son Joseph has to go and serve the sentence for the sins that were committed against him. In verse 45, chapter 45, back to chapter 45, verse 5, amazingly, when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, he would comfort them, tell them not to be distressed or angry with themselves. And later the son, Joseph, would end up saving the lives of his brothers and his father. Friends, this is the gospel of Jesus. The father did send a mission to his sons and daughters. We didn't simply send Jesus away, but we, in fact, killed Him. It wasn't only the centurions that day that nailed Jesus to the cross. It was you. And it was me. It was us who put Him there. Our sin that put Him there. And God intentionally designed the cross to be the very thing that saves the sinners who put His Son there. Amazingly now, even though we wanted Him dead, we did not want the salvation that God sent. Jesus served the sentence for our sins in a greater way than Joseph served the sentence for his brother's sins. And it would be for the reality that we, His sons and daughters, would be set free. Now friends... This is the good news. You have been set free by God. You and I are those brothers. 
And you and I are now the ones who get comforted from Joseph, our Joseph, Jesus, who says to us, looks at us in the eye, don't be distressed. You sinned against me. Don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves. I've taken care of that. Enjoy the freedom that I've brought you. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your grace to us. Your mercy is on display. I thank You for how practical it is to know that You are in charge of everything and that nothing that comes our way, nothing that comes our way in this life starts first with the enemy. Nothing that comes our way is random. Just like we see in the life of Joseph, God, may we be able to say, you know what? I don't know what's going on, but I know God is with me and He's going to do this for good. This is for my good. It's awful. It's painful. It's terrible. But God is at work in my life. And if we can hold on to that, this is boots on the ground, simple stuff. If we can hold on to that, by Your grace we can face anything. And if we can see ourselves in the faces of those brothers, heartless, not caring, not caring, caring at all about our weeping Savior in the garden, help us to see not just the love of Joseph, but the love of Jesus, the truer and greater Joseph, who loved his sinful brothers and sisters. And didn't just provide food for them during famine. He has saved our souls. It's going to be our joy to worship. Jesus, it is in your name we pray. Amen. Let's worship.